This is the Be On Mission podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser. This year we're taking a look at the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament as we go along. Last week we, we looked at the book of Acts and a story about honesty with some people that really didn't have integrity. And Ben, this week we're going to take a look further in the book of Acts, chapter 6 and chapter 7, with a man who had extreme integrity and honesty of life. And his name is Stephen, and he becomes the first Christian martyr. We want to talk about that a little bit. Let's just jump in on this one. There's a lot to cover. We're not going to hit every word of Acts 6 and Acts 7, but there's a a bunch that's happening there. Now, we'll remember last time in, in the podcast that the church, the new Christian movement was trying to figure out how to take care of the poor, how to take care of people. And one of the answers was to sell some property and, and give the money to the apostles, and they would distribute it to people who had need. There, there was also a need for food, the basics of life, and there was a conflict going on because certain widows were getting preferential treatment over other widows. We're not going to de- go into detail on that today, but their, their solution was that they would find some people who would oversee this food distribution, this, this mega food pantry, so that the apostles could focus in on the Word of God and prayer. And so they, they agreed that was a good idea, and they, here's the, the description in Acts chapter 6, verse 3. They said, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be. Now, here, here's, the, here's the checklist of who can run the food pantry. Full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. Who can take responsibility, take, turn the responsibility over to them. And verse 5, this pleased the whole group. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and full of the Holy Spirit again. This, this to me is a, an interesting way to look at that. In fact, if you go down to, to verse 8, because I just want to focus on Stephen for a moment, it says, he was full of God's grace and power, and he performed great wonders and signs. The word full is used to describe Stephen three different times about a variety of things. So he was full of the, uh, uh, I'm sorry, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, full of responsibility, full of faith, full of God's grace, full of power. Is this a little bit surprising? Okay, it's surprising to me. It's a little bit surprising that someone that those were the qualifications that were needed for somebody who was going to be running a food food distribution program. I'm not at all minimizing that ministry. It's an amazing thing that happens in our church and many, many other churches. It's it's so essential to bring food into the lives of people who don't have food. It's a, it's an incredible thing. But the checklist, I mean, I don't think that I was grilled that hard for my ordination. Well, I was on theology, as we've talked about, but not necessarily like the Holy Spirit and wisdom and faith and God's grace and God's power and and work great wonders and and signs in life. Why, why did they do this? Why why have those qualifications for? They're not looking at the guy who's going to take Peter's spot and be the leader of the Christian movement. 
They're looking for a guy who's going to oversee distribution of food. And I don't know why I'm I'm making a separation. Maybe because it's how we do it in the modern church. Uh, what's up with all that? Yeah, I think there's a. Uh, I think in the modern church we we have we make a mistake in how we in, in essence apply God's good gifts to us. And so there have been times within. Uh, within churches that I've served where people have come into, in essence, into leadership who spiritually weren't ready for that. They might have had a, a gift of administration, been put on, you know, some sort of oversight board or, or church council or something. And uh, just because they had this uh, beyond the walls of the church, obviously had a gift of, of administration or, or some other, in essence, qualifying gift to serve on a particular board and yet weren't spiritually mature enough to be serving on that board. And inevitably, their presence there created disunity. It created, in essence, conflict um, because the, the board itself weren't of one mind and one heart, uh, being submissive uh, to the, the spirit and to God's guidance and, and desire for the church. What we see, I think, here is that the understanding among the apostles, the understanding among the, the early church community, that as folks are coming to serve within the body of Christ, they're coming to serve within a position of leadership, their lives needed to be fully identified with Christ himself. And part of that is, is because in any place of leadership that you're put within uh, the church, within the, the church body, there's going to be an essence where you are going to be uh, nurturing others, discipling others. And we see this. We see this both with Stephen. We'll see this in chapter 8 with Philip. Um, while these folks might have been uh, given the task of uh, distributing food to, to the widows who were in need uh, within the church body, they are also uh, men who were proclaiming the gospel. Stephen did not get killed or as we'll see here in a little bit, um, Stephen was not martyred because he was distributing food. He was martyred because he was uh, bearing witness to Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 8, as we'll see, Philip, who was again one of the seven, um, Philip is one of the, the first uh, evangelists, in essence, that we see who goes on beyond the border of Jerusalem and Judea um, and how's that encounter with the, the Ethiopian um, in, in Acts chapter 8? And so I think that that's where, again, we have this, we have this sense where we, in, in essence, when we look at, at different positions within the church body or, or areas of need that we might have, we have this sense of compartmentalizing out, oh, this person's gifted to do this without ever really considering is their life one that is full of the Spirit, full of wisdom? Is their life one that is truly fully devoted to Jesus Christ. Yeah, I, I perhaps have been guilty in my years of ministry sometimes of, you know, I'll just full confession, I guess. I, I'm thinking like the more spiritual people, so to speak, are going to be the ones who are doing discipleship work and, and leading small groups and so forth and, and so on. And others can do the administrative jobs, and, you know, and that's just backwards. It's backwards from what, what the Bible puts forth. In fact, it was expected that these people who were doing administrative or or mission-type work would also be doing the same spiritual work. And that's exactly what we see because 
Stephen, it says there in verse 8, performed great wonders and signs, and it was that activity that stirred people up. And we see a ton of opposition come in Acts 6, beginning in verse 9, as opposition arose. And they didn't like what was going on. And out of that, verse 11, they secretly, secretly persuaded people to say, we heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. That's about as bad as you can get for somebody who was a, a Jewish person that day. You speak against Moses, you speak against God, you're in trouble. And so in verse 12, they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses. Like all, all this activity, this opposition for a guy who's distributing food, but also in the middle of that is doing great wonders and signs. He, God is using him to touch the lives. I don't know if it's the, the widows who are, who are coming for the food or others in the community or others around him, but he is doing the spiritual work of God in life, and they are bringing it down on him. What, what do you think is going on that, that people get so up in arms about someone who's ministering to other people? I mean, you hinted at it here a moment ago, but why? why? Why would that have stirred them up so badly? Well, they're, they're obviously uh, the Jewish religious leaders, Roman authorities, and right here, the Jewish religious leaders, I guess, in particular. But the last thing they want is this persistent spread of, of the gospel itself. The last thing they want uh, are, is more and more people coming to, to know uh, Christ as, as Savior. And that's what they're seeing. That's what they're finding is that the this this first century uh this first century church is uh is expanding and growing uh by the day with the number and number with the the greater number of people coming to to know Christ as savior and Stephen's obviously in the middle of all of that and they take notice of Stephen they take notice of Stephen because of his boldness uh because of his faithfulness to to Christ because of his unending testimony uh, to Jesus, and they take notice of him, and they have no good argument against what it is that he is preaching and declaring and proclaiming. And so, you know, earlier in verse ten, he said it says these these men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. And so, what do they do when they've got no argument? They start fabricating. Uh, they start uh, making up lies. Um, to, in essence, uh, you know, find a means, uh, a means to accuse Stephen, find a means to bring him before the Jewish authorities, find some means to uh, silence him, to discipline him. So the charges they, they have made there in verse 11, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And then over in verse 13, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place, that would be the temple, I'm assuming, and against the law. In particular, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of what we call the Old Testament. So there are these charges they brought against him. And then if you flip the page to Acts chapter 7, right out of the gate, the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? You know, time and again, I mean, if you, if you go back to the, the Jesus story that we looked at last year, and 
that's in everybody's Bible, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the high priest is at the center of that story, in particular at the end of it when they put Jesus to death. And the high priest keeps showing up again and again and again. He represents the, the religion that's gone awry in, in, in many ways. The, I, I just find it, it interesting that they can't get away from this guy. So, but but he, he straight up asks Stephen to defend himself, and are these charges true? Are you speaking against Moses, against God, against the temple, against the law? Is that what you're doing? Is it true? And I find it interesting that Stephen then gives them a lesson in their Hebrew heritage. He spends the next bunch of verses, all the way to verse 53 or something like that, talking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon. These are are like the, the hall of fame of the Hebrew faith, of what we call the Old Testament. These are the the people who got it done, and he just speaks about them over and over and over again, and it seems like they're they're with him to a degree. They're they're listening to a degree, probably to see if he gets his his facts straight. I, I don't know, but there's there's not much of a problem until verse fifty one, and in fifty one through fifty three, he looks at this high priest. He looks at the members of the Sanhedrin. He looks at the spiritual leaders, the same people who had conspired to put Jesus to death, and he looks at them in the eye and said, you stiff-necked people. You know, you know, Ben, I, I don't know if, you, if when you're trying to uh, win people over in the congregation, if you open with that or even close with that, uh, you stiff-necked people, but he certainly got their attention. Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. And I, and I love how Stephen interacts with the uh, the Jewish religious leaders because he he meets their accusation by revealing to them by showing them hey he's got this obvious uh, just knowledge of Old Testament scripture of their of their uh, Israelite heritage uh, to boot and he shows how all of this points to Jesus himself and and really honestly he parallels what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus with the the two that were walking with him when it talks about how Jesus opened the scriptures to him to them you know he's just opening the the, the Old Testament scriptures and saying hey look all of this points to Christ and yeah at the end of it um, while I'm sure they were tracking with him at you know throughout the whole of it and maybe uh yeah who knows exactly how they're responding to him but then he just absolutely in, in verse 51 drops the hammer uh, on him, on them. Yeah, he, he says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. Hmm, interesting imagery. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? So he's gone through the whole Old Testament, sort of a, from a historical point of view, and weaved in that are all the pr- prophets who spoke things. And he says this in verse 52, they, your ancestors, even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, which would be Jesus. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. So he doesn't back down from these people who have huge authority in his life that 
religious scholars of the day, he says, not only are you stiff-necked, but you're disobedient. You're so disobedient, you put to death Jesus, who was prophesied in the entire Hebrew scriptures, in the entire Old Testament. You're so full of yourself, you couldn't even see him when he came. Well, they didn't like it. They weren't, they weren't uh, going to pin a medal on him. And in fact, in verse 54, it says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. I always wondered about that gnashing of teeth thing, what that, what that looks like or sounds like. It's, a, it's an image that's given a bunch of times in the Bible, and it's, it's a, I guess, a, a gritting, a grinding of the teeth. It's, a, it's, it's something, but they were really, really mad. And in verse 55, we learn more about Stephen. In the midst of him receiving all this heat, verse 55, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, there's the word full again, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Why would this have made them so upset? Because he's further bearing witness to who who Christ is. And that, that's one of the aspects of this whole encounter that, that in, in essence, I mean, I, I marvel at. Because Stephen had to know, again, he, he drops the hammer on him early in 51, 52, and he relates them to the, the false prophets. He relates them uh, to the, the disobedient uh, Israelites of old who who rejected the words of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and Joel and all these prophets, all these prophets that they themselves saw them, uh, you know, they saw themselves through the lens of being aligned with Isaiah and Jeremiah. The, these religious leaders were the guys who were probably, you know, wandering around town in Jerusalem saying, yeah, if we live back in the day, we would have repented. If we live back in the day, we would have been part of that righteous remnant. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, Stephen exposes them for who they are and says, you know, ultimately says, no, no, you wouldn't have been. In fact, you're, you're part of the unrepentant, uh, Israelites of, of old, you're modeling their behavior. Um, and then, yeah, as we press into this, they seize him. And then, uh, Stephen continues to bear witness ultimately to Christ. And, and what seems in essence is a, you know, him just testifying to, to what he's seen, but as he's bearing witness uh, and as he's sharing that which he sees, he's, he's ultimately positioning Christ once again as the one who is the righteous one, the anointed one, the one who sits at the right hand uh, of the Father himself. And so they are completely incensed at this point. Yeah, I mean, as they're, as they're picking up rocks and stoning him to death, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And, and then a remarkable thing down in verse 60, do not hold this sin against them. Wow. As, as he's dying, he takes on the attitude of Christ on the cross and says, don't hold this sin against them. It's, it's a remarkable thing as, as the, he becomes the first martyr that we know of 
first martyr in the Christian faith. It, it had a great impact. You know, when we started this podcast, I think one of the first weeks, maybe the first one, we looked at Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus told the, the disciples that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit, power of the Holy Spirit would come on them, and they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where all of it's taking place up to at this point, in Jerusalem. Judea, that, that's the area right around Jerusalem, the nation. Now it's going to spread to Samaria and the ends of the earth. And because of this, it happens. And let me just, just dip a little bit into Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul, who was also known by the name of Paul, but at this time he hated Christians, Saul approved of their killing Stephen. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So the fulfillment of Jesus' message, take it to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, begins to happen immediately when this martyrdom of Stephen takes place. It was, it was like, it was the catalyst to get people out of the city of Jerusalem and into the rest of the world. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul, Paul, began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So they they went into Judea, they went into Samaria, and they were preaching the word. We learn from Acts chapter 11 more about this scenario. Acts 11.19 says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as, and now these places are beyond Judea and Samaria. They're outside of Israel. There are territories that were Gentile in nature. There, there were Jewish communities there, but they were, they were run, not run by the Jewish people. They traveled as far. I'm sorry, let me back up there. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews at first. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, the non-Jews also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. So it's, it's being fulfilled. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Like There's nothing these guys could do to stop the spread of Christianity. When they left them alone in Jerusalem, 3,000, 5,000 continued to grow. When they persecuted them and sent them out to Judea and Samaria, and then the ends of the earth, the Gentile speaking, uh, the Greek speaking places run by Gentiles, Christianity continued to grow and people became believers. And there's nothing they could do to stop it. Nothing at all, because this is so great. Now, so I have a question as I think about this, just like an opinion thing, really. Um, was, was Stephen's martyrdom, and in general, the blood of the martyrs throughout time, is is it an essential part of the gospel of Jesus Christ taking deep root and having great impact in the lives of people 
who haven't been exposed to Christianity, or maybe who have, but haven't taken it seriously. Like, where does martyrdom play in the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ? A little light question for you that will wrap this thing up. <laughs> yeah. How many, how many seconds do we have left? Uh, yeah, the... Uh... Yeah, martyrdom has always played an essential role in the spread of the gospel uh, throughout history. And what you oftentimes see is you see in areas where Christians are most uh, heavily persecuted, you see the gospel uh, spreading uh, more quickly. I think one of the, crazy enough, one, one of the, uh, the struggles within the Western church is our individual freedom in essence, uh, has created, oftentimes creates a, uh, I don't know, sadly, like a dullness within our heart or an apathy within our heart because we, we live with such personal freedom that there's no real cost in essence to, to following after Christ where what we see in other nations or in other areas where there's intense persecution, there's always cost associated with following after Jesus, and so the intimate, uh, the the intimacy of uh, folks in other spaces and in places where there is intense persecution, the intimacy of their relationship with Christ uh, lends itself to this persecution. They're not hiding, in essence, who they are, and their willingness to passively suffer persecution to to in, to be passively put in jail. It's, it's one of those things where, what I mean by passively, it's like they're not, they're just looking to be faithful to Christ. And out of that, they're being, they're, they're uh, enduring suffering for it. But in the presence of suffering, it shines a light to the truth of the gospel. And in most uh, other areas where, again, persecution is a reality, you know, what you see born in that is you see uh, you know, one of the great missional movements that many people in the West don't even know about is the Back to Jerusalem movement that was founded in China and by uh, Chinese Christians and by uh, South Korean Christians. And the idea is to to bear witness to Christ in uh, between China and Jerusalem, all these places where the gospel has not been proclaimed, uh, where uh, folks have not been reached with the gospels, the gospel as of yet, and and one of the things that the Chinese Christians have brought is they understand that hey, you know what? It might take several generations of missionaries into these spaces before we start to see fruit being born uh, for the for the sake of the gospel, and they recognize that in essence that missional movement is going to be. Uh, going to erupt out of the blood of the martyrs, as they say. And so they recognize going into these places, again, between China and between Jerusalem, that reality is, is those first generation missionaries going in will most likely suffer death. And yet they go and they go freely and they go willingly and they go joyously uh, in, for the sake of bearing witness uh, to Jesus Christ. Those are some profound thoughts. I'd like to uh, end this one a little differently. And if you're willing, I, I would I would love it, Ben, if you would just pray us out of this podcast in praying for that kind of work that's happening even now around the world. Are you willing to do that? Yeah. Father, I give you thanks for this time uh, with Mark and with Doug. And Lord God, uh, I, I pray 
Uh, Father, I pray for a willingness, for a desire, um, Lord God, for uh, a freedom to go and to bear witness to Jesus in all places. Uh, For us, Lord God, for that freedom, for that willingness, uh, Lord God, to proclaim Christ wherever we may be. And uh, we do lift up those, Lord God, who are suffering this day, our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who live in places where persecution is just a reality uh, for them as they bear witness to Jesus Christ. And we pray for them. We pray for that continued boldness. I pray that their boldness would speak into our own hearts, Lord God, as we follow uh, their lead, as they live into Jesus's call to go and to make disciples of all nations, Lord God. Uh, May their faithfulness, uh, Lord God, call us to account. May their faithfulness, uh, Lord God, nurture faithfulness within us. In Christ's name, amen.